Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Dance podcast. I am your host, Takia Noor Amin. For the launch of the Dance Channel, I thought long and hard about what the first author interview would be. I felt that it was critically important that this channel begin with a rich conversation between myself and a well-respected author whose contributions to dance scholarship were substantial. It seemed to me that this channel could function as a space where the voices of those doing rigorous work with dance at the center would be invited into conversations that focused on their most recent project, but exposed the challenges and issues they faced along the way in trying to do their work with integrity. To that end, I knew I needed someone whose voice in dance scholarship was strong and consistent and whose contributions were undeniable. When I thought of it that way, it became clear to me that I needed to have this first interview showcase the work of Dr. Brenda Dixon Gottschild. Dr. Dixon Gottschild's newest work, Joe Myers Brown and the Audacious Hope of the Black Ballerina, a biohistory of American performance, chronicles the growth and development of one of this country's most important dance companies through the life of its creator and her community. Here, the author treats readers to a backstage pass into the mind of one of the toughest ladies in dance, Joan Myers Brown, founder of the Philadelphia School of Dance Arts and later of the Philadelphia Dance Company, known lovingly as Philodanko. It's important to understand that this book is a bio-history, a work that blends not just Ms. Brown's biography, but contextualizes it in the history of Black Philadelphia and the development of American concert dance. This book is just the most recent in the line of works written by the author, whose work is always focused on bringing invisibilized narratives to light and putting them into their proper historical context. The author, who I'm glad to know as Dr. Brenda, doesn't shy away from the realities of race, class, power, and gender that can often constrain one's mobility in the world. And her work here makes clear that to that point, the dance world is no exception. Challenges and constraints aside, Joan Myers Brown and the Audacious Hope of the Black Ballerina, a biohistory of American performance, is an example of some of the finest contemporary scholarship in dance studies. As the fifth book project for Dr. Brenda Dixon Gottschild, fans of her work won't be left wanting for anything in this newest book, and dance enthusiasts are sure to find a compelling narrative that will leave them satisfied and wanting more of what this author has to offer. Dr. Brenda, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to be the inaugural interview for the New Books Network Dance Channel launch. We are really excited about this, and I'm really happy to be talking about what I consider to be a phenomenal and groundbreaking project, your book, Joan Myers Brown and the Audacious Hope of the Black Ballerina, a biohistory of American performance. Um, Just just to get started... um, Can you talk to us about who this book is for? Who did you have in mind when you were developing the project? 
And who would you say is the ideal audience for this work? First of all, Dr. T, thank you so very much for inviting me to this interview and into this new dance channel. I'm, I'm very honored and touched indeed. And, um, okay, a little bit about uh, the book and the ideal audience. This is always a, a difficult issue, uh, and one of the first issues that the publisher asks of you when they do the marketing survey, you know, who, who's your target audience? Well, I always say, and this is my fourth solo book, fifth book, including the textbook, I always say that I attempt to write in a style that is scholarly but accessible to non-scholarly readers because there's a huge lay audience interested in unconventional approaches to cultural history who have taken up the issues that I've talked about in my books and uh, certainly an African-American audience, but other diasporan peoples who live in the Americas as well. So the book I see as being for academics as well as for lay people, and content-wise, it's for the dance community, both academic and professional, and for people in women's studies, gender studies, American and African-American studies, sociology, history, uh, I've even been invited for residencies by um, people in English departments. So I de do see my work as uh, highly based in interdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. That's really, really wonderful to hear. I do um, feel like, uh, particularly when I look at the announcements for academic conferences and even the conversations that I've been in lately, there's a lot of talk about not just interdisciplinarity, but transdisciplinarity. Or mm -hmm. undisciplinarity, right? That <laughs> right. we need to imagine the boundaries between disciplines as just, as not fixed. Exactly. As imaginary. So that we can begin to talk to each other in really meaningful ways. Exactly. Right, right. I wanted to say, oh, I'm sorry, you go ahead. I might just add also, I think that when we're talking about non-boundaries, we're also uh, hopefully thinking about the dilemma that we have on our planet at the moment and as human beings at the moment that we must reach out. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I first became familiar with your work when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Buffalo and realized that it was even possible to grow up and be a dance scholar. <laughs> and, and, and when I came across your name, I took it upon myself to try to get my hands on anything I could that you had written. So I am a huge fan of your work. I always have been your book, Waltzing in the Dark on African-American Vaudeville, was um, particularly formative for me when I was coming into my own, um, digging the Africanist presence in American performance. I still teach sections of that book in my own courses. And of course, The Black Dancing Body um, has been a really groundbreaking text for the dance field. I know lots of people who are using that book in graduate seminars. So I wanted to ask, given your career, you know, your, your fifth book project, everything that you've done as a dance scholar and writer, what does this audacious hope, what does this book about <laughs> Joan Myers Brown mean for you at this time in your life? Well, as I've said someplace, somewhere, somehow, <laughs> I've basically just been putting one foot in front of the other. 
I haven't done five-year plans, 10-year plans, anything like that. Uh, definitely, of course, planned to move this book forward year by year since 2008 when I started it. But really, basically, I see this book as just the next move in my progression of work that's aimed to bring another, to use my coinage, invisibilized Africanist presence front and center, which is where we belong. And like my previous books, it's a broad cultural study using dance as the focus. Again, like what I've said before, and I say again because I understand dance to be a barometer of culture and the measure of society. So this is just the next step. That's very exciting. And I really appreciate hearing you talk about um, doing work that has a broad focus, but that keeps dance and the body at right. the center of the analysis and at the center of the inquiry. Right, right. Can you share with our listeners what you think are some of the distinguishing features of the book? I feel really lucky to have had a little tiny part in helping with the book. And <laughs> I have to say, it's beautiful. Um, apart from the wonderful scholarship, it's just a wonderful object. And it has some really wonderful features. So if you could share that with our listeners. Oh, thank you so much. And um, uh, let's see, where to begin? Well, one of the things that I think is um, important and unique, and again, about invisibilized presences, is using Du Boisian theory, W.E.B. Du Bois, to examine the Philadelphia dance community of the first half of the last century. And um, I do that early on in the book, like in the first, uh, and I have my copy of the book here, I think in the first chapter, I talk about, yeah, the 1920s to the 1940s, there's a section uh, where I talk about uh, Essie Marie Dorsey, uh, a ballet teacher in the black community in Philadelphia in the 1920s. Uh, and I talk about Du Bois and... Uh, uh, Booker T. Washington. I'm using the Du Boisian theory of the talented tenth in order to address the whole phenomenon of the black ballerina and what that meant. And again, his theory of the talented tenth was about uh, a proportion of the African American community that would then uh, learn arts and letters, uh, visual arts, orchestral music, ballet, uh, Europeanist-centered forms, if you will, but not in and of themselves, and not in order to insert one's African self into a European society, but in order to bring those goodies, if you will, back to the African-American community uh, to, uh, in order to enrich and enlighten. Now, of course, that's all set in um, his time and era, which was the turn of uh, the 19th century into the 20th century. So we have to put that in perspective. But using Du Boisian theory of the talented 10th and a little, to a lesser extent, that of double consciousness in order to examine the Philadelphia dance community. So I think that is unique. And the whole thing of bringing Du Bois, who was such an important American figure, uh, to bear in a piece of cultural and historical and sociopolitical research. Uh, I also then use um, one of my 
current heroes, President Obama's uh, speech on the Joshua generation uh, to talk about the difference uh, to, between old school and new school choreographers and teachers. Um, Obama gave a very interesting speech um, down south uh, someplace, I can't remember where, but during his uh, 2008 campaign, and he talked about the Joshua generation, those who are standing on the shoulders of the ancestors. Uh, the Moses generation did not get to get over the top of the mountain in the Martin Luther King sense. So the Moses are the ones who did all the hard work. The Joshua's are the ones, like Obama himself, who are now there, but for whom it is important to realize that all the work is not done. And I use that dichotomy, Moses versus Joshua generation, to talk about um, the kinds of choreographers that formed this Philadelphia dance community, some old school, some new school. Third thing that I think is really important is, and then I'll stop with those three, is um, uh, the quantity and quality, and that had to do with the interviewees, the quantity and quality of the interviews with people crucial to our understanding of the development of a black-based concert dance aesthetic that spread nationally and internationally, and of course is not limited or delimited to the black community, but is accenting the work of white and Asian concert dancers as well. Uh, when I first moved to Philly in the 1980s from New York City, I thought I was going to do some huge project, but then all these other books intervened because of the cultural wars, largely. The cultural wars of the 1980s and 90s actually spoke to me, and again, putting one foot in front of the other, and basically told me I needed to do what the first book, Digging the Africanist Presence, became. Anyway, so I was derailed in a sense, but I held on, as a good researcher does, I held on to all those old interviews from the 1980s, interviews with Billy Wilson, Gene Hill Sagan, Arthur Hall, John Hines, Joseph Nash, Marion Sujet, all of whom have passed away. And for any of, of the listeners on the Dance Channel who don't know these names, very easy to Google them and you will be able to know their significance. So the information that they imparted was essential to me in creating what basically is this ethnographic description of the concert dance community in black Philadelphia. That is just so rich and wonderful. And I appreciate you for sharing it because hearing you talk about how you sort of thought through the development of this project with the theories that um, grounds and contextualizes it is a really wonderful model for yes. myself and for listeners who are thinking about doing similar kinds of work in our right. own research. You know, it's one thing to read a book and really like it or enjoy the content. It's another yeah. thing to really think through how that project is organized. So along those lines, I want to ask, how is this book different from your other projects? For you and especially. For you okay, especially. <laughs> and I would just like to say one thing about how uh, the book was organized, what you were saying a moment ago, uh, you know, that, again, the whole idea of invisibilized presences, it seems so important to me because 
as many of us realize, and not just people of the African diaspora, many of us realize how significant the African quotient, the Africanist, African and African American quotient, have been in forming what we understand as a postmodern and a postmodern society. Uh, uh, again, the names that I mentioned were people who ultimately became political, Du Bois and, of course, uh, Obama, uh, but they were highly intellectual. Another person, I mean, we could, we could look at, you know, other researchers could look at uh, the ways in which uh, the works of Martin Luther King Jr. and his incredible uh, thought-through lectures, for example, influenced a whole kind of dance that came out of the 1960s, or how the work of uh, a Malcolm X, for example, how did that and again, I'm, I'm pulling names, but how did the, how did their influences uh, make and and move and shake uh, a, a, a dance cultural world in uh, subtextual ways? Those are the kind of things that I'm interested in and that I'm constantly reaching for. And now I'm going to have to ask you if you would repeat your question. <laughs> That's perfectly fine. I just wanted you to share with our listeners um, mm -hmm. what key ways would you say is this book different mm -hmm. than your previous projects? Oh, okay. Well, uh, let's put the textbook aside for now. The textbook, however, was important um, in uh, bringing to bear this Africanist presence as part of a um, an undergraduate textbook. Uh, but uh, my first solo book, Digging the Africanist Presence in American Performance, Dance in Other Contexts, I see as similar to the third book, The Black Dancing Body. Both books are um, highly theoretical in the ways in which I understand theory, which means theory grounded in experience because you probably know that I was a dancer and then an actor in uh, experimental theater. So all of my stuff is grounded in practice. But both of those, the first and the third books, are very theoretical. The other one that you mentioned, Waltzing in the Dark, African-American vaudeville and race politics in the swing era, is very similar uh, structurally to the new book, Audacious Hope, in that both of them are ethnographic, cultural studies of a community and a tradition with the career of one female dance artist at its center. Waltzing, of course, profiled a popular dance career in the entertainment industry, Margot Webb, uh, in the swing era, in the 1930s and the 1940s. And, of course, uh, Audacious Hope is about the black Philadelphia concert dance community. That's really, really helpful. I just want to say that that textbook, History of Dance, of the Dance in Art and Education, that you did with uh, Sarah Hilsendanger and Richard Krauss, I still teach sections of that, too. So it's still oh, a right. really, really wonderful and very useful contribution. Okay. Um, I'm sure you know which sections were mine. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, given the richness of Philadelphia's dance landscape, Mm -hmm. and Philadelphia's black dance history in particular, why did you feel that it was important to do this project now? What does it mean that this project is here emerging in this time, in this moment? Well, it's, it's so incredible. It really is about time and timing because I knew 
And I started the research in 2008, as you know, being my first research assistant, uh, that uh, I was hoping for the book to come out actually in 2010, because 2010 was the Philadelphia Dance Company's 40th anniversary, and Joan Myers Brown's school, the Philadelphia School of Dance Arts, the 50th anniversary. What was wonderful, though, was... I was able to hand deliver a copy of the book to Joan Myers Brown for her 80th birthday, December 25th, 2011, last year. So the book actually came out in 2012, but the reason I wanted to do it now was because of these very significant anniversaries that were coming about. Mm -hmm. Given what you've said about those significant anniversaries, um, Joe Myers Brown's own birthday, the Mm -hmm. anniversary of the school, the anniversary of the company, how -hmm. would you describe or what's your opinion about the responsibility of dance scholars and writers in documenting the work of contemporary companies? Now, I see myself as primarily an historian. Dance happens to be my passion. My interest in chronicling a company like Philodanko is, again, to establish its place in the historical record and to show how it reflects the past, predicates the future, while staying grounded in the present. And that is my purpose. And, And that would be if I were still teaching, that's how I would teach the current crop of future scholars in graduate dance programs. Uh, the sense of a line of continuity of history with a contemporary dance company placed in its rightful position on that historical uh, line. Mm-hmm. It's really refreshing to hear you talk about contemporary companies in this sense of lineage. And continuity, yes. Yes, particularly because as someone who's educating undergraduate students, um, there's a way in which the only thing that seems to be important to my students is what's hot right now. Right, And and sometimes things move so quickly, um, what was hot last week doesn't even matter anymore. Right, exactly, exactly. So, So getting students or readers to think about continuity or human experience as a long-term conversation or set of phenomenon and experience is just so in line with, I think, sort of the goals of education, certainly, but what's at the core of of good scholarship. Exactly, exactly. And, of course, whether one sees oneself as an historian, as an ethnographer, as a sociologist, I think, or or whatever else, I think in all of these uh, cases, this sense of continuity, as well as presence, is uh, a a wonderful um, trope, if you will, a wonderful trope or a wonderful integer uh, or organizing um, factor for, for the study of any particular discipline. So again, what we were talking about before, um, non-disciplinarity or interdisciplinarity or, or transdisciplinarity, that idea then of the continuity of forms, if you will. Mm-hmm, 
Mm-hmm. So we've been having this sort of lovely, wonderful conversation, and I want to get to a little of the nitty gritty. Uh oh. What Uh-oh. were the? I, I know that in doing any kind of project, um, I'm sort of beginning to just stick my toe in the water of my first mm-hmm. book project. Um, yeah. What were the particular challenges? that you faced in putting this book together and how did you um, press through them so that we have this wonderful, wonderful document with us today? You really want to hear this all? This is another hour. <laughs> this will be an hour and a half. No, no, no. Okay. So, so we need to talk about some of the challenges and mm-hmm. all I can say is Dr. T, this was indeed a slippery slope. This was a rocky road. Uh, you know, it's always touchy dealing with the biography of a living subject. And uh, even though I've had all this publishing track record, I had difficulty getting a publisher. One publisher turned me down because it was the biography of a living subject. (laughs) When I told Joan Myers-Brown, she said, you mean I have to die in order for you to write about me? Well, on another note, and again, I'm just going to list a bunch of things. On another note, a dance colleague that you and I know in a privileged editorial position, but from a different perspective, claimed early on when she saw some of my chapters that my research shouldn't be a book, but maybe an archived collection of the interviews. She told me that her academic group would not be interested in publishing it because it was, and I'm quoting her now, it wasn't theoretical enough. Now, I thought that was interesting, that this researcher could not recognize or acknowledge the theories of W.E.B. Du Bois and identity politics as theory. Okay? And then there were more issues, of course, uh, negotiating the different personalities I was working with. Joan Myers-Brown, who is a tough, wonderful lady, but she is tough, tough love lady. Uh, no, negotiating the other interviewees, I mentioned the ones who had passed away. Of course, uh, many of them are, are, thank God, wonderfully alive. Negotiating the small staff I had hired thanks to a very generous grant from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage through Dance Advance. And I must mention the Pew Center through Dance Advance because I got uh, the initial grant to do the interviews in 2008 and then in 2010 a very large production grant uh, to complete this book in the beautiful form that you see it in. Then dealing with the publisher the various editors at, you know, at my publisher, and anyone will have to go through this, the marketing and production uh, editors, the distribution departments, including the copy edit staff, which, this was new for me, was outsourced all the way in Chennai, India, with a nine-hour time difference to be considered when I had questions. And believe me, I had many questions. And that was how much publishing had changed since uh, I had published The Black Dancing Body in 2003 and 2005. So I had to resolve or at least go beyond so many things, including different work styles, different ethics, different personalities. But I'll tell you, the one saving grace 
was that everybody that I was working with wanted this work to succeed, and everyone working with me believed in it. So I say to all aspiring academic authors out there, take heed. It is indeed a weighty and um, frequently stressful situation. I appreciate you for being so transparent about that, um, particularly for younger scholars who are thinking about perhaps their first project. It seems like magic. You know, it seems yes. like you have an idea, you send out a proposal, people love your work, and somehow through right, you right. Know, grace and glitter, there's this beautiful <laughs> book and now everyone's raving about it and it's on Amazon.com and things are perfect. Clearly, it's not that easy. So I just appreciate yeah. you um, at, really as, as a very well-respected scholar in your own right and really as an icon in our discipline and just being grounded and open enough to share that with, with me yeah. and with our listeners. Yes, and I, I just, again, uh, it, it's like what Miles Davis said about composing, you know, I, I, whatever I do compose, it's not even the music that I heard in my head, you know, or, and, and that then it has to go through production anyway, or the people that you're working with change. Uh, musicians talk about this. Um, certainly with books, it's, you know, film producers, or, uh, film directors actually talk about this because it has to then go through production. But in any uh, situation where you are creating a, a piece of work, whether it's uh, visual or performative or literary uh, or music, there is this issue then of it from A to Z or A to B, whatever you want to call it, it is not going to be that magical, you know, it's, there is no silver bullet. <laughs> There is, no, you know, it will definitely be, and, and you really have to fight, and you also have to negotiate and compromise. So that's important as well. Thank you very much. I want to ask, what's been the biggest surprise to you in terms of the critical and popular response to this project? Um, I think it's wonderful, and I know that our listeners will too, but what kinds of, we will, we love it. It's, it's really great. I mean, apart from the scholarship, as I mentioned, it really is just a beautiful object as well. Any bibliophile would want to have it in their collection. But what has surprised you about the critical and popular response to the work? Oh, I sigh with that one because uh, in many ways, Many things, given my past track record, were not a surprise because it's been this way before. I mean, basically, just getting down to the nitty-gritty, I get a great response from African Americans generally. Now, of course, that doesn't mean 100%, but generally a great response from not only African Americans, diaspora and Africans. I have an audience in England. I have an audience elsewhere in the Caribbean as well. Uh, I get a great response from people of color, diaspora and people, be they scholars or lay people. Wonderful online reviews from African American sites. A lot of reviews went all over the place. Great press also from Philadelphians and here, black and white who are familiar with the territory, so they, again, understand the lay of the land. Also, predictable 
but always noteworthy. And this is the thing that I meant about something that's not a surprise. It's when a reviewer doesn't review my book, but the book they wish they had written. Okay? Not even the book they wish they were reading, but the book they wish they had written. One reviewer said that she felt Joan Myers Brown was lost in all the history and voices of other people. Now, that was very disturbing to me because I clearly stated in the prologue of the book that this work is, and I explained what I meant by the word, a biohistory, meaning the biography, biology, and ecology of a community, a tradition, and an aesthetic, and J Joan Myers Brown's career was the fulcrum. So it's her biography, but really this larger connecting continuum of this tradition, this aesthetic, this community. So, again, somebody taking the limited view. Somebody else told me even before she saw the book, when I had asked her something about uh, a chapter, she said, well, you know, you shouldn't be, you should be talking about all the black ballerinas, not just J.B., and the Philadelphia tradition. But you see, these are people who need to follow up on my work and write their own books. So that, I guess, would be, again, as I said, it's not really a surprise, but you know it's always surprising when it's the same old, same old. Mm -hmm. I really, um, that resonates with me because, you know, as someone in a university setting who teaches dance history, one of the things that I really pull back from is sort of recapitulating the idea of the single solitary genius or <laughs> the single artist sort of generating their own brilliance in a cave somewhere, you know, because I find yeah. that doing so really undermines the goal we have with students, which is, you know, we sort of articulate that we want them to be able to see a life in dance for themselves. And we uh, want them yes. to be able to step into this lineage, you know, by choosing a life and dance. You're stepping into mm -hmm. this lineage of people who've chosen right. to live in the world in an embodied way. And then we present these single artists as these 25 foot tall icons with no mention of the sociocultural or political context out of exactly. which their life or their art emerges yeah. uh, you know I, yeah. I've seen you know people downplaying collaboration and we know that it's all collaborative in some exactly. way so you exactly. know so so when I got the book and I saw you know this term biohistory which mm -hmm. is about biography and biology and ecology it's about community her experience exactly. doesn't emerge in a vacuum or somehow separate and JB's yes. lineage is as a much a part of me and my students. And the, so I just, I appreciate yes. you articulating that because there are those of us who struggle with trying to um, teach in a way that really exactly. centralizes that kind of point of view. Exactly, exactly, right. And again, as you said, you know, What's interesting about the, I've used this term, I think, in digging, uh, the uh, urge to pedestalize people and put somebody up on a pedestal, the, the flip side of that is those same people are ready to knock them down in one fell swoop. 
Uh, so that's another reason for us to understand community and the ways in which somebody like Joan Myers Brown represents the apotheosis, if you will, of a community that at this moment in time, again, the idea of where she's standing in the present, at this moment in time, she is the sum total of all that came before. Yeah, yeah, I, re I really appreciate you just for putting that in context for us and getting us to understand that um, while we may focus our scholarship on people who have accomplished great things, it's because they were in, they came out of a context, a moment, exactly. a community, and that they are the product of something other than just their, their own self or their own kind of, I don't know, bootstrap exactly. mentality here. Exactly, exactly. And of course, that was one of the things that really got a, a whole other audience up in arms with the first book, because I was talking about Balanchine's debt to a certain kind of presence that had been invisibilized. And of course, he was one of those pedestalized icons, you know. So it's all very interesting. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Well, lastly, I just want to, you know, I want to thank you again for giving us your time and for being so open and transparent um, with me and with our listeners. I really appreciate and admire your generosity of spirit. Thank you. Thank you. And I just wanted to ask as a sort of parting question, what's next for you? You talked about, you know, putting <laughs> one foot in front of the other and as long as I've known you or known of you, you've always been working on something. Oh. So, so can well, we get can we get a little taste, a little preview? What's coming next for you? Uh, actually, the um, the honeymoon for this book is not quite over. I had a wonderful um, tour, a uh, California tour in February, a um, an English uh, British tour in uh, May. And I have some more bookings coming up September 30th here in Philadelphia, uh, the Chestnut Hill Book Festival. Uh, book promotion then continues at a fairly nice clip. And um, I'm just going to say, <laughs> here's my little cell. Any listeners who are interested in having me come for a residency, uh, a book signing, PowerPoint presentations, class visits, or what I'm really interested in and what I do now, my anti-racist sensitivity work, still using dance as the focus. You can contact me at my website or on my Facebook author page. So all of those things are ongoing. Uh, I've done um, a lot of this uh, lately, not a lot, but several residencies for um, through dance departments on campuses where there's been some particular uh, racial tension or issues. Um, and then, uh, what else? That... Um, I'm looking forward to this one. I've been invited to write an essay for uh, the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Dance and Politics. And I'm really looking forward to chewing on that essay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dr. Brenda, I want to thank you again on behalf of myself and the New Books Network Dance Channel. I want you to know that I um, am so humbled and honored that you took the time to do this. And I'm really excited about your upcoming publication, too. So as you chew on that project, know that you already have um, an audience of readers who are really looking forward to whatever comes from. Oh, thank you so much. 
Bless you. you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Brenda Dixon Godshield, author of Joan Myers Brown and the Audacious Hope of the Black Ballerina, a biohistory of American performance, which is published by Paul Gray McMillan and available now at local booksellers and online retailers. I'm Takia Nuramin, and I hope you've enjoyed the inaugural podcast of the New Books Network Dance Channel. Be on the lookout for our next interview coming soon. <laughs>